out there in Bourbonville Talkland, Randy Sullivan, with a very special episode today. We have Cave. Tell us how to say your last name. Zamanyan. Zamanyan. See, y'all have been saying it wrong. Everybody says Zamanian, but it's Zamanyan. Uh, so, very excited to have you on. Let's talk very uh, briefly because you have a very interesting backstory. Most people that start a distillery like this don't have your background. So tell us what you did before, and in brief, how did you come to start a distillery? Yeah, you know, I was a psychologist uh, for about 18 years. So I had a clinical practice in Chicago, taught at the university there, and um, always been a kind of wine and spirit guy. I cut my teeth in the hospitality business when I was a kid, bar, restaurant business, and always had a soft spot for wine and spirits. Um, my wife is from Louisville, started coming down here in probably about 19 years ago, and slowly got the bourbon bug through her. And um, when I started coming down, I really couldn't believe how few people at the time, now this is looking back 18, 19 years ago, knew about bourbon outside of Kentucky and Tennessee Belt. So for me, that was a little bit of a kind of a aha moment that, you know, there's something really special here that I would love to be a part of. And that was the beginning of Rabbit Hole, just dreaming about how and what way and what time I can join the all these great distillers around here. That's amazing. That is so amazing. We are going to be talking about Rabbit Distillery, which you founded. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about finishing because, you know, my channel is about education. My people want to learn about these things. But while we're on Bourbon Grill Talk, we typically drink a little bit of whiskey. So, what do we have today? Let's start with our uh, first release of Founders um, series, which is. Boxer Grail. This is our Kentucky Straight Rye, six-year-old, released in cask and uh, Founders Edition. Um, give it a pour. Let's see what you think. Let's check it out. This is a 95.5. It is aged in toasted and charred barrels. It is entered in the barrel at 110. Um, it is kind of under the tutelage of Mr. Ebersol. Makes sense. 95.5 was the MGPI uh, rye mash bill, That's and right. he was their master distiller. Yeah. Then he became a consultant. Yeah. He trained uh, a lot of our guys here. I think one of the things that's really unique about this expression, aside from the fact that you know it's, a, it's an older expression compared to our core, it's released in cask, and and I think the toasted barrels really bring out flavors that um, you don't necessarily always get in a standard rye whiskey. Yeah, this is uh, super tasty. So I get, and it's interesting because I normally, on NGP's 95.5, I normally get a lot of dill. Uh, but on this one, I don't get that. I get more of like a pine needle flavor, which I more closely associate with like a Thomas Handy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Thomas Handy is my favorite rye of all time. Uh, but maybe the exception of the Booker's Rye, but sure, sure. Else, that's well, you know, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, Fred Minnick did a tasting, and our rye, our box and grilled cask, went head to head with Thomas Handy. And, uh, you know, to me, it was a huge compliment, right? Sure. Because I think Handy's a great rye and obviously an older expression than our six year old. But it says a lot in terms of what, um, what this expression is about. It's just got a lot of complexity that I think, you know, is part and parcel of a great whiskey. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely beautiful. So, one of the things that's super interesting about this distillery is that 
you don't have the typical background of somebody who starts a distillery in Kentucky. Um, you have a very unique name, right? Yes. So um, most uh, distilleries have a beam or a no or a whatever. Uh, but your background was a little bit different. So tell us what your path was to opening up a distillery. Sure, sure. You know, I was a psychologist uh, uh, in my previous life, 18 years um, in practice teaching. So are you a doctor? I am. I am Dr. Zamanian. I've kind of let go of that title. I'm a whiskey maker now. Yeah. Well, I'll call you doctor, just, you know, just, sure. just out of, uh, uh, to honor your, well, the, the work that you put in up to that I point. I appreciate right? it. I appreciate it. So, so a psychologist yeah. become whiskey maker. That's right. You know, it's like, what's your path to health? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I hear it's your wife's fault, though, that you... It is a little bit of her fault. You know, I started coming down here in 03, and uh, she's the one that kind of helped me transition from scotch to bourbon. And, uh, you know, really, honestly, it was my muse and the person that helped me kind of see and discover the depth and rich tradition of Kentucky. Right, right. And so, and is that where the rabbit hole thing comes from? Like, you kind of went down the whiskey well, rabbit hole? Or? Yeah, you know, I started, you know, look, it was an aha moment for me because I realized that um, there is an opportunity here. A lot of bourbons were coming out of a handful of distilleries, and I want to do something original. And back in the day, there were 2,000 distilleries here in Kentucky with a lot of expressions. And I felt like, look, I can do something very similar to the early days of craft beer and craft wine, that there's a movement here for craft bourbon, and we can have distinct recipes and do something original. I started telling my wife, Heather, about this. And you got to put it in context. At the time, we had a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And I kept trying. Hey, that's the time to start a multi-million dollar risky no, business shit. venture, right? <laughs> About what year would this have been? This is, uh, we're looking at 2011. I started the conversation in 2012. I incorporated. Okay. And, um, and, then, and this wasn't even before bourbon was like, you could, you, yeah. you could throw a rock and find a bourbon customer. Like at this point, bourbon was starting to grow, but it would, yeah. like, you got in at the beginning of the bell curve. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I was there with... I remember hanging out and talking to Wes Henderson with Angel's Envy, um, David Mandel, who was one of the co-founders of Bordenstown Bourbon. Um, so we kind of came of age around the same time. And But my wife is freaked out because she's like, we got three little kids, and what the hell are you doing? So Rabbit Hole was you know, more out of this thing of you're going to basically take the family down, down the rabbit hole. hole. <laughs> that was it. I like um, that. But, you know, I think she's on board now, and obviously we're on the other side of it. But but it was pretty challenging in those early days, for sure. That's awesome. Well, um, you, you mentioned that you started off with a love for scotch, mm -hmm. right? And, and scotches are very different from bourbons in that typically they're aged in a barrel that had something else in them. And whatever that thing is yeah. can influence the flavor of the whiskey, does influence the flavor of the whiskey. And because the 1964 regulations for bourbon state that basically has a new has to be in a new charter container that you couldn't really have that type of influence on your whiskey uh, but there's been this change the shift for finished whiskeys yeah. right and you guys are kind of known for being experts at finishing whiskey or at least in the circles that I run in people are sure. always really impressed with your finished whiskeys um, and you've got an example of that here tell us what this is 
Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think most people know us for Pedro Jimenez PX Sherry Cask finish, which I think is just super uh, delicious. But this is a really exciting release for me. This is the second release of our Founders Edition. Now, in addition to collecting old Dusties, I, uh, I've been a big fan of you know, different, I found basically I have a small collection of barrels. And this is actually from a private collection that I've had. Um, from different distilleries in Kentucky, 15-year-old base that I blended together, and we finished it in Japanese oak Mizunara casks, and that's what this is. So I, I've been hearing this uh, this term Mizunara. It's, I'm going to pour some Yeah, let's 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 check it out. Um, I've I got the opportunity to try the the uh, Angels Envy Mizunara cask, and my my buddy um, Alex Baptista opened that up with. Far more people at his house uh, than he should have opened that bottle because it got destroyed that night. Everybody wanted to try it, and I've I've heard of a couple of others that are doing it. But my understanding is is that this this oak is very hard to get your hands on. Yeah, you know that's one of the challenges with Mizunara, right? Um, it takes about two hundred to five hundred years for the wood to mature. And there's not a whole lot of coopers that are actually producing this. It's a really um, fragile and porous wood, so constructing it requires a serious craftsman to be mm -hmm. able to put it together. So um, combination of all those things makes it a really challenging um, barrel to acquire. You know, I took, God, over two years it took me to get these barrels, believe it or not. Wow. Waited for two years. And so these barrels, you know, a typical uh, barrel is usually around, what, $200, something yeah. like that. It's a, you know, char three or four, you know, new charred oak. Um, a, about how much is a Mizanara barrel? Yeah, these are somewhere between $3,500 to $4,000 per barrel. <laughs> wow. Per barrel. So what is that, 20 times as expensive, something like that? Yeah, yeah. something like that. And that's that's going to add some expense to the, the, the finished product. Definitely. Um, definitely. So uh, approximately, what does this bottle cost at retail? So this goes, uh, MSRP on it is uh, $1,500. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's fifteen hundred dollars. That's a that's a that's a pretty big but it's a chunk. But I, I feel like that there's a shift happening in bourbon, and people are starting to realize like, hey, I'll pay a thousand, two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars for a high age scotch. Um, but there's not very many barrels of fifteen year Kentucky straight bourbon floating around. And there certainly aren't very many that have been aged in barrels that cost 20 times as much as a normal barrel, <laughs> right? And so, you know, if you want something that's this ultra premium. Yeah, I think on a, just on the sheer business side of it is that our margins are the same as they are with our core product. So this right. is by no means an, an effort. A money grab, right. It's not a money grab. Sure. Um, and I think it was a lot of risk, right? Because we had talked about it off camera before that you know that when we make something when we finish something, if it's a batch that's no good, I toss it. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know. You don't blend it out. No, because, you know, to your point, we're an emerging brand. The last thing I want is for us to get a bad rap for a lousy product on the shelf. So it took a lot of risk to be able to put this together. And at the end of the day, from a business standpoint, it's essentially the same margins and everything else. Wow, wow. And also keep in mind, just so everybody understands out there, when he says margin, understand that all... 
uh, bottles, except for distillery release bottles, have to be sold through the three-tier system. Um, and typically there's a 30% markup at each tier. So um, if, if you're talking about a, a bottle that's selling for, you know, $100, um, the producer themselves might have made 50 or $55 of that 100 The rest goes to the wholesaler and the retailer. Um, so when you try to do the math on that, it may seem like the company's making a lot of money, yeah. but there's a lot of people in that food chain that have to be fed from that. Yeah, I think, you know, this is one of the most challenging um, businesses just from the sheer fact that you got to put a, a lot of investment in and wait a lot of time before you're able to even procure anything. I think sure. this is one of the things that I really tip my hat to anybody that gets in the in industry. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of craft guys out there that are taking risks, they're putting their heart and soul in it, and, uh, and they're trying to do something original. The barrier to entry is pretty steep. It's not the same as some of the other kind of the wine and uh, beer industry. I, 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 you say tip the hat. I'm like just fascinated by the people that are willing to take that risk. Um, and part of the issue is, is that in, in the whiskey business, there's very little direct-to-consumer sales, so you don't get to keep all of the money that you make when you sell a bottle. Whereas in beer and wine, there are entire craft, right. uh, you know, wineries and breweries that don't even go through distribution. They don't even sell in liquor stores because they can sell all the product that they can make direct-to-consumer and keep that's all right. of that money. But um, in most states, that's not possible for whiskey producers. And so one of my friends in Texas um, likes to say, uh, starting a distillery is a great way to make a small fortune if you started with a large fortune, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you, you, that that's, it captures it. You know, there's a lot of romance into it, mm -hmm. and, and i got to tell you, I'm, I'm smitten with it because right. that's why I got in business in the first place. But the romance fades away pretty fast yeah, yeah. when you see the ledger and you realize you gotta you got to make ends meet. So how do you decide what barrels you're going to put into your finishing program? Because I've, yeah. I've heard people make comments that the barrels that are finished are the bad barrels. You're trying to hide some flaw or some fault. Um, is that the case? Like, how do you... Not for us. I think we have a half a dozen to a dozen different projects going on at the time. And for me, uh, the base liquid has to be exceptional. That's a given. But the barrels um, have to match. Right. You know, this is where the partnership with the right Cooperage makes um, a world of difference with PX. Sherry cast that we have as an example. We have a partnership with the Cooperage in Spain, and we know the wood goes from Ohio to Spain and gets filled with sherry. Um, two years, dump it, bring it to Kentucky. Every step of the way, we're connected to it. Um, that quality barrel is what ensures RPX to be what it is, and I think with this, the same way. We actually have a video now that's released um, that captures our relationship with the Cooperage in Japan. You know, that's really the key element and ingredient. If the barrels are no good, and believe me, if you don't do your spot check, you can have some lousy barrels because we've had them before. The liquid's not going to come out good. Um, and then the last thing I'll say that, you know, there is a difference between what we do and maybe some other folks might do, which is because finished whiskey is strictly speaking a distilled spirit specialty category, um, it gives you a lot of leeway in terms of what you might be able to do in terms of coloring and flavoring. We don't do any of that stuff. It's the barrel as it is, as it's meant to be, um, and the impact of wood on the liquid. That's it. Um, we don't touch it, no flavoring, no coloring, no nothing. Right. 
And for those of you that don't know, there's, there are standards that you have to follow. And when you apply for your label, you have to declare what the, the spirit is. And if it's uh, class 101, that's bourbon. If it's 141, it's straight bourbon. And if you do something to it that makes it not a bourbon, it goes into this distilled spirit specialty class, which is 641. And there's not a lot of rules, but what, what Kaveh is explaining to us is that they still follow all the rules as if they were making a straight bourbon, even though they have the legal flexibility to add flavoring, coloring, things like that. Now the one thing, one other thing that's really special about this Mizanara cask is especially from that classification standpoint, even though it's finished in Japanese wood, this is in the category of uh, straight bourbon. Right, because it, it was all in new charter controls. Yeah, exactly. So I call this the ultimate double up. Yeah, right? I, yeah, for sure, for sure, right, <laughs> right. Because you, you, you took it out of a barrel, you re-barreled it, but it was a new charred oak container. That's right. So therefore, it is still bourbon. That's right, exactly. That makes right. sense, that makes sense. So one of the things that I wanted to ask is, you know, starting a distillery is a risky venture. Um, what do you think makes Rabbit Hole distinct and different from all of the other offerings that you know, I got in the business because I wanted to make sure that we add something new to the chorus of great whiskeys that are out there. So for me, originality is a really important piece. All our whiskeys are one of a kind. The recipes are unique, and that's, I think, one of the things that makes us stand apart. I tell people that, you know, if our warehouses went up in smoke tomorrow, God forbid, um, we got to start from scratch. I can't source it. I can't blend it. It's one of a kind. I think the other piece is, along the lines of what you were saying about our finishing projects, we want to be on the cutting edge of what's happening in American whiskey. I think this is an amazing time for American spirit industry, it's American whiskey in particular. If we get to have folks know Rabbit Hole as being on the innovation, kind of cutting edge of uh, whiskey production, I think um, I would be smitten. I think there's two things, originality and innovation, that I think Rabbit Hole stands for. Well, I will say I, I think you're accomplishing that now. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge whiskey enthusiast. I have, God, I probably have 400 bottles of bourbon now. And I will say that the two distilleries that are newer, that I'm most excited about are, are you guys and New Riff, right? Yeah, uh, New Riff is awesome. And so, and, and I don't mean to leave anyone out of like some wilderness trail things and whatnot, sure. but um, I mean, you guys have been able to produce a spirit that tastes like it's more mature than it really is. It's it's integrated. It's it's complex, but it doesn't taste like it was released before its time, and that's been something that's made me really excited about your products. Um, you guys have sent me a media bottle that I couldn't stay out of. I had to hide it for myself, you know, because uh, I try to give the media bottles to the club members to try. I don't feel like it's just for me to drink, you know. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. Now you did mention that you collect um, historical bottles of whiskey and I'm going to ask on camera that one day you let me come back and do a video of your whiskey collection uh, because 100%, I, right? I hear it's amazing. Well thank you. I, I mean, it's, I'm proud of it and uh, I hope one day you can come to the bunker and see uh, see what we got. That About how many special. bottles do you got? You know I've got somewhere between 1500 to 2000. Yeah. Um, but I'm also, you know, 
trading, giving yeah, sure. things away, and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and a lot of your bottles are even pre-prohibition. Yeah, that's one of the uh, part of my collection that I'm really proud of is a collection of uh, pre-prohibition, prohibition era releases, which is just you know stunning because you got to get a taste of that time period. You know? All right, well you heard it on camera, people. Um, I, I get to come back to the bunker, and we're going to do that. Uh, but one of the things that you had had mentioned was not only your love of scotch, but your love of the history of bourbon, and you have probably one of the most extensive collections of bourbon that kind of will show the history of bourbon, right? Um, this concept of finishing whiskey, which you're crushing it at, is relatively new to the Kentucky bourbon industry. Um, also being kind of a bourbon historian, if you will, how do you feel like the distillers of old would feel about this movement and the shift towards finishing? You know, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think that they would be really excited about it. Look, because at the end of the day, um, we need to have standards, right? And I think I'm a stickler of that. I think that it's important to maintain the parameters of what constitutes bourbon, and we don't water it down with coloring and flavoring and all that stuff. But with that said, if you stick to those strict regimens um, of basically producing something organic, I think they would be really excited about it. Because you know, there's a lot of really cool things coming in. I think of Lincoln Henderson, right? Mm -hmm. Lincoln, you know, with what they did with Wes and the rest of the family, they pushed the envelope of what American whiskey could be. I think they've left an impression on it that you know it's not going to be erased, and it's opened the door for um, other folks doing something similar. So I think they would be proud of it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I thought of when I read this question was that modern bourbon drinkers think that bourbon has been defined the way that it has since its beginning, but it actually hasn't. Right. The, the rule that you couldn't add coloring and flavoring and it had to be made in the United States and all that stuff became a rule in 1964. Yeah. So the pre-prohibition bottles that you My had... My date of birth, by the way, I gotta tell you, 19, I think it was a mentum. <laughs> so the stars were aligned. But so you were born in 64? 64, 64 Nice, nice. <laughs> so you and bourbon were born the same year? I know. Yeah, I know. bourbon as we know it today. And so I, I feel like, actually, when people ask that question, they don't understand that a lot of the pre-prohibition uh, bottles very well may have been aged in used barrels, very well may have had, you know, influences on them that would not, they wouldn't even be considered bourbon today. And so I don't think that the distillers would be turned off by it at all. I think that the no. distillers would think like, oh yeah, you found a way to make an amazing whiskey, great, let's drink it. Yeah, because I think you know one of the things that's happened that's phenomenal is the fact that the quality of whiskey has gone up. Just for a second, I want to make, give a nod to you know, Wilderness Trail, New Riff. You know, obviously, I think that we're in that same track. Sure. I'm excited about what's going to be happening in the next 5, 10, 15 years of what's coming out of Rabbit Hole, New Riff, Wilderness, and other facilities that are just really pushing the envelope. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of your point about the past, is people forget that there was a lot of crap whiskey back then. Sure. Because there weren't a lot of oversight and standards. Sure. And, you know, when you come to the bunker, we'll taste some stuff. You know, I've had some dusties that are exceptionals, and there's some dusties that I'm like, this is dog. There's something wrong this with this. Yeah. Shit. yeah. You know, don't want it. Um, so it really, really, it, you know, we know E.H. Taylor, obviously, one of the folks with 
like you know Pepper family, all these guys that gave some standards and quality standards. And I think now we've adopted those standards. So if anything, apples to apples, I think we're making better, better. consistently better whiskey than we did in the past. I think that's fair. So with the growth of finishing, um, that's kind of revolutionized. And you mentioned Lincoln Henderson. I mean, he. Yeah, I, I know he wasn't the first one to, sure. but he, in my opinion, he was the first one to kind of normalize having finished bourbon. Do you see any trends or do you have any prediction, predictions of what might be the next big thing for bourbon? I do, you know, I think that this is where Rabbit Hole has an edge. We started the brand um, putting our money on distinct recipes okay. and distinct cooking processes. Mm -hmm. uh, very similar to the culinary process, the way I approach it, you start with great ingredients, you pay attention to the process. Um, I think if you think about different chefs making the same dish, they use slightly different spices, different ingredients, the way they cook it, makes a huge difference in terms of the outcome, in terms of the flavor. So while the finishing is focused on the tail end of the process, one of the things that I think is really exciting, and Rabbit Hole's on the forefront of this, is what's happening on the first half of the whiskey-making process. So we spent a lot of time experimenting with different mash bills. We have five different bourbon mash bills in the process. We have a couple of different ryes, a handful of single malts. I think the recipe configuration, different, essentially, ingredients coming in, and a better, maybe a little bit more focused approach on temperature set points, all those little technical things that make a huge difference, um, things that we get geeky about, are going to have an impact in terms of where the next generation, the next wave of whiskey movement is. And I think you're gonna see it, you're seeing it already with New Riff, I mentioned, Wilderness Trail, a lot of great craft distilleries around the country that are doing those unique things. They're authentically making one-of-a-kind whiskeys, and I think that's what makes me excited about the next um, essentially chapter of American whiskey. I think that's fair. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the bourbon mash bill for the major legacy Kentucky distilleries, with very few exceptions, has been almost ubiquitous. I mean, there's small differences, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But if everybody uses the same source of grains and they use almost the same mash bill and they age in the same geographical area, so the temperature fluctuations are all the same, and they all buy their barrels from ISC and you know whatever. They're, right. What's causing the variance between the whiskeys? Maybe the yeast or something. But um, uh, but but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that I think that there's artists almost that are coming into the space that they want to try new things and they want to try new mash bills and they want to try new techniques. And we have technology now that will give us feedback to tell yeah. us, are we going in a good direction or a bad direction? I mean, this is the beauty of bourbon, by the way, because the way it's defined, okay, you got a 51% corn, but then you got all this kind of, you got 49% of playbook in any way you want. So if you look at Cave Hill, you got basically four grain triple malt bourbon, okay? You got high gold, which is high rye double malt bourbon. We're playing around with that 49%. Right. And in the way that we're cooking it and processing it in a way that is just novel. Right. right? And I think that there's a, we're not the only ones. I think we're on the cutting edge of it, but there's a lot of other crafts that are doing the same thing. And that's what makes me excited about the future and the next chapter of American whiskey. 
Nice. So the Bourbon Road Talk channel, we're all about using whiskey to bring people together because I've just found that bourbon is a connective force, right? It, it, it's meant to be shared and people, it's a social lubricant. People talk more, they make friends. Um, and you've been in, in and around the industry. You've had the opportunity to hang out with all of my idols and, and probably have drinks with them and all that. Is there a memory that sticks out in your mind that's just like this really positive experience that was created around bourbon? Yeah, you know, probably one of the most memorable um, experiences for me is when we had our um, grand opening. Um, the distillery had finished, and um, and I don't know about this, by the way, but my team put together this basically our this box edition, four bottles of Rabbit Hole, the first releases of each, signed by all the greats of Kentucky Bourbon. So you got you know, Jimmy Russell, Fred No, you know Brent Elliott. I mean, it goes on and on. Every signature is on there. Um, and to your point, I know these guys. I've spent time with them. We're um, partners and colleagues in Kentucky Distillers Association. But I got to tell you, I mean, for me, I mean, I still get a little emotional thinking Chuck about up. it because you got a guy named Cave coming into Kentucky uh, with these established families. And these guys took me under their wings and they just like, to me that was like, you're one of us, right? And I'm telling you, I'm still getting emotional every time I talk about it because, you know, this is one of those things where, especially at a time where there's so much division, division. and issues, this is one thing that truly I've always thought about this and one of the reasons I got into business is wine and spirits and food, it's about bringing people together, man. And when you got people that have no reason to give me the time of day, they look at me and say, you're one of us, and we want you to kind of, we're, we're embracing you, um, I will never forget that. And that box is a cherished box that uh, is in the bunker. You'll see it when you come and visit me. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I fantasize that my kids are going to get it and pass it on. Sure. Because it's just, it's, it's history. Yeah, that's, that is beautiful. So if somebody wanted to get more information about Rabbit Hole, wanted to get involved, where should they go? You got Instagram, you got You got Instagram, stuff. website. Um, I mean, heck, there's even some TikTok videos, but, but <laughs> Instagram and, uh, and our website probably are the best way to... Rabbithole.com? Rabbitholedistillery.com. Okay, Rabbitholedistillery. Rabbitholedistillery.com, and on Instagram, it's just Rabbit Hole is the handle. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I probably should go to rabbithole.com. I don't know what's there. But <laughs> I it know, sounds like it'd be bad. Well, it's a whole other thing. That's We can talk about it after. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if, if this is your first time watching the Bourbon Real Talk channel, I want to let you know that this channel is about bringing people together, right? Um, I, unfortunately, I, I lost a loved one to suicide in 2014. And I, I looked into suicide prevention speaking and things like that, but... Um, that really just wasn't for me, but I, the experience itself made me realize that people feel, that you may have people around you that feel disconnected, they feel unloved, um, they, they feel like they don't have a place. And I started noticing that when bourbon was out, all of that kind of went away. People seemed to feel connected, they seemed to get to know each other. And uh, since I wanted to do something to honor the memory of my brother's death and I wanted to help, 
um, I, in, in part, decided to start this podcast so that you all would feel connected to the world around you. Uh, but I've also noticed that there's a lot of hate uh, online in uh, division, people saying hateful things to one another over ideological differences that quite honestly wouldn't matter if you were just having a drink together. <laughs> and I figure that if somebody can hate you online that you've never met, it's just as easy for me to love you. And that's why I end every podcast with the same sign off, and that is this. If you woke up this morning and you were unsure whether or not anyone loved you, just know that I love you. I'll see you next time on Bourbon Real Talk. Cheers. Cheers.